This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich, that's how it goes, everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. One of the funny things about uh, radio is sometimes when the red light is off, some of the most amazing things happen, some of the most amazing stories happen, and I guess that's the the challenge uh, in broadcasting is to get that stuff that happens off the air, to get it on the air. Victor Vigiani is in studio with me, and we just had the most amazing... Amazing isn't the right word. Let me tell you, let me put it this way, and I'm not going to dwell on it. Uh, We'll save it for another program, a little tease. Uh, but when you're discuss when you're swapping levitation stories, uh, you know you're in a strange business. I kid you not. He has a levitation story, and I have a levitation story, and uh, we're not talking yogic flyers here, ladies and gentlemen. All right, think the dark side. I kid you not. All right, as I say, uh, Victor Vigiani is in studio. The media. Uh, director of ExoPolitics Canada. Victor, always good to have you aboard. How are you, my friend? Terrific to be here. Just fine, thank you. A little plug for what's coming up in Hour 2 of the program. Paul Hellyer, the Honorable Paul Hellyer, Deputy Prime Minister of this country, a heartbeat away from being Prime Minister of this Mm -hmm. country, also, of course, Defense Minister, will be dropping bombs in uh, roughly an hour time. Yeah. Well, how else can I put it? No, it's uh, it's a good way to put it, Richard, because he's a man who's been there. He's, uh, as you said, uh, just a heartbeat away from the seat of power here in Canada, as, as uh, sort of the the next in line in the uh, in the government. And then having the kinds of experiences that he's had, not only in the government but following his uh, decision to come forward and uh, challenge the whole, uh, I guess, the whole country um, about the UFO issue in two o five that he did it at. Uh, Convocation Hall, 
And it was a very powerful afternoon, and we're very uh, proud to to be able to bring this to to all of our listeners because he's not only a very intelligent individual, he's extremely articulate and very, very profoundly committed to this this issue coming forward. Well, not only is it... I mean, I, I threw this word around a lot when he was here, and, and, and it's because it's, it's an apt uh, term, and that is gravitas. You've got, again, a uh, former defense minister, former deputy prime minister of this country, saying that UFOs are real. But then he goes a step further and starts... It's really, it's vindication for a, a lot of people that follow this program and a lot of the researchers and, and authors that we have on this program. He starts throwing around words like cabal and shadow government, that's that's keeping a lid on the UFO, mm-hmm. uh, a secret, uh, and it, which and it applies to other areas as well. I mean, of course, what yeah. more do people need than to hear from some someone with this sort of cred? Talk about these sorts of things. What else do you need? That's right. And if if anyone, any good journalist from the Toronto Star, or Globe and Mail, whatever it happens to be, uh, and although he has written pieces in in Globe and Mail for other things, if they were to go to him and say, "Listen, we'd like you to do a piece on this issue, on the UFO issue, uh, in the Globe and Mail or any other major newspaper here in, in Canada, or Toronto," uh, like you say, who else could do a better job of it? Exactly. All right. So that's uh, the Honorable Paul Hellyer coming up in the second half of the program. And uh, talking about gravitas and cred, Richard Dolan is uh, the author of the groundbreaking historical series UFOs in the National Security State, chronicling the modern UFO age with an emphasis on military encounters and government secrecy. And uh, this work, uh, two parts in what will be eventually a trilogy, has been acclaimed as the finest history of the UFO phenomenon available in any Language. He's also published articles, spoken at conferences around the world, appeared on numerous TV specials as an on-air expert, including my TV show coming up, uh, and his new book, his latest, in which he co-authors with Bryce Zabel, A.D., After Disclosure, The People's Guide to Life After Contact. Richard Dolan, good to have you aboard. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hi, Richard. It's a pleasure. It always is a pleasure to be on your show, and I'd like to extend my greeting to Victor, who I heard out there. Good to, good to have you on. Hi, Victor. What if? This book poses a lot of what ifs, and uh, of course, what if? Uh, the, 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 the first question is, what if UFO secrecy ended tomorrow? What happens next when the powers that be finally admit we're not alone? Well, what if indeed? It's a question I've, I've been asking myself for quite a few years now. Um, I, I was dragged into this question. I really didn't initially uh, enter the UFO field to get into the what ifs of disclosure, but um, here I am. And um, yeah, I think, you know, there are people out there who have, who have been following this and have argued that disclosure will never happen, uh, that the secrecy is is too entrenched, which it certainly is very entrenched. Um, and that furthermore, there'll never be an honest disclosure, which I happen to agree with. But that doesn't mean that it won't happen. And uh, what one of the reasons that Bryce uh, and I wrote this book is to, to lay out our opinion, that uh, despite the fact that disclosure has, in a sense, been impossible all these years, it's also inevitable. It is, it is the ultimate paradox. Um, one of the things that I tried to explain in this book is why I think disclosure is inevitable. 
Um, you know, it, the short answer is that simply the, the pace of history in our society is going to way too fast. The pace of change is too fast. And that something is going to happen, some kind of trigger will happen that's going to put the leaders, the, the powers that be of this world, in a, a very difficult position in which they're going to have to come clean in some manner. And so uh, when a disclosure event happens, it will only be because it's been seen as necessary uh, for those those people in charge of the secret to maintain as much control as possible over the, the subsequent spin. But Richard, you and I have talked over the years, uh, along with, with Victor, and, and you seem to have uh, arrived at the conclusion... I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem to have arrived at the conclusion that it's not within the president's power. Somehow this, the, the chain of command, uh, the structure of government changed some, somewhere during maybe the, uh, I believe there was some sort of a Rockefeller um, initiative during the Eisenhower administration, and that the structure has changed, the president can no longer disclose, even if he wants to. Um. More or less, yeah, I guess that's what I would say. I think um, when you take UFOs out of the equation, first of all, just look at uh, the structure of government in general around the world, and it's really not difficult to see that in the case of the United States, for example, that, um, you know, is the U.S. president really at the top of the power pyramid? Um, Really, I think the answer is no, he's not. Uh, Presidents are, I think, more accurately selected rather than elected. Um, and and what we really need to do in order to understand the true structure of power in this world is to under is to know who are those groups and individuals doing the selecting. Um, uh, you, you mentioned Rockefeller. I would say that uh, David Rockefeller, who's still alive, he's in his mid nineties now, has been America's unofficial kingmaker really for the past fifty plus years. And I don't think there's been a single president who's gotten into the White House that Rockefeller disapproved of. So uh, in that sense, you could say that if, if there's a kingmaker making the king, then that's someone who we probably want to take a look at. And in terms of UFO policy, I do think, and I've, I've uh, spoken by now to enough uh, individuals who I feel are deep insiders um, that have said really the same thing, that in a matter of UFO policy, the president is... I mean, it's not only that the president doesn't have the authority and power, but the president almost can't. Um, There's just too much involved here. Uh, Presidents come and presidents go, but this, the infrastructure to manage the ET reality, the UFO reality, that stays. And so uh, they they let the president know what what they feel they need to. All right. We'll uh, take a time out. When we come back, we can discuss maybe how you see disclosure happening, and then we'll get into some more what-ifs with historian Richard Dolan, AD After Disclosure, The People's Guide to Life After Contact, Victor Vigiani from Exopolitics Canada in studio. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show here on AM740. The truth is not out there, it's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. After disclosure, what next? Richard Dolan attempts to answer 
those questions in his book, A.D., After Disclosure, The People's Guide to Life After Contact. So if it's not the president that's going to, uh, to make an announcement, will it be uh, some member of the geoplutocracy, the, the cabal that seems bent on uh, global domination, Richard? Oh, no. No, no. The, the, the president will make the announcement. Uh, but that just doesn't mean that he's the guy in charge. Whose or, hand will be up his back? <laughs> whose what, hand will be? Whose hand then will be up his uh, up his uh, back? Well, uh, look, there there's a group. I think uh, we can call them majestic. Uh-huh. Uh, that's certainly been the name that's that has been bandied around for many many years. I think that very well might be the name of the group that is uh, what we may call the the ET or UFO secret keepers. Uh, at least the human end of it. Uh, what I could imagine happening <clears throat> is uh, uh, a major event occurs. Let's say, you know, in, in a situation where 100 people who by now have HD flip cameras in their possession or attached to their phones are able to record something that is literally undeniable. It is so obvious. It's so, you know, this is not the kind of technology we had a few years ago, but we're getting to the point now where it's it's going to be the case. And so... Uh, where the hand is forced. And when that happens, what I can imagine, in fact, what Bryce and I even uh, decided to describe would be a kind of meeting among the majestic group. Um, We really try to to recreate what the arguments might be to disclose and not to disclose. And uh, what I really think would happen is that ultimately, when they decide to disclose, one of those members of majestic will probably take a walk to the White House and brief the president on what needs to be said. Yeah, that's um, that's a good way of putting it. Um, I, I've often, I, I guess it's part of the evolution of what, I guess, you and I have been involved in over the past, I don't know, for me it's been about 35 years. I'm not quite exactly sure for yourself, Richard. but well, Longer than me, yeah. I've, I've done this now. I've been really into this for about 15, yeah. 15 years. Well, I, I guess the evolution that I've been through and the way I see this thing evolving is initially when I got involved in it, it was, you know, one thing or another, and it was pretty prosaic. But as as you move along and as you evolve towards some sort of um, understanding of what's going on, I've become to, uh, of the notion, I've become sort of a closer to the notion that this this whole idea of, the, of what we do examining this UFO issue, it's sort of like we're looking at the issue as sort of political and intellectual graffiti. In, in a way that just doesn't sit right with a lot of people. They, it's like you're on a, on a passing train and you look at the graffiti on the wall, you just turn the other way because you don't want to look at it. You know, yeah, and that, I think that's exactly what's going on. But I, I think part of our job is to have the people stare at this graffiti and say, "Listen, there is something worthwhile in in the etchings here." Absolutely. And, and uh, I think what you've done in the book is prepared a way for it, for it to be looked at. One of the things that occurred to to myself and to Bryce, and as we got to the conclusion of this book, is that it occurred to us, it became very easy for us to understand why there is secrecy on this topic. And the reason is that because the implications of the end of secrecy of UFOs, of the ET reality, the end of that secrecy would threaten to turn upside down so many elements of our society, which is really what we spent most of our energy writing about in this book. And so when you, when you see the deep changes that are likely to come as a result of this, then you start to look at it and think, from the point of view of those people who have the secret, it's not hard to see why they would want to keep that secret as long as possible, because so much really will change. And much of it, I believe, for the better. But nonetheless, it's going to be a bumpy ride for quite, quite some time. Um, one case in point. 
uh, one that, that I think people in the UFO field are very, very aware of, we talk about a lot, and that's energy. You know, if mm-hmm. we, we come out, if the president finally makes a, a, a statement that some of these UFOs are real and some of them, in fact, are not from our civilization, well, holy hell, everything now becomes up for grabs as far as the public is concerned. That, you know, people are going to be saying, well, wait, you've been lying to us all these years about UFOs. That's going to be a political, dicey issue to deal with. But someone's going to realize very quickly that all of these objects that have been seen zipping around the skies are using something other than gasoline to get around. And so whatever the source of that energy is, it's going to threaten the world's largest industry, and that's petroleum. Mm-hmm. And anything that threatens the petroleum industry is going to be a huge issue for our entire global infrastructure. And I'm not saying it's that we shouldn't replace petroleum. The whole world is dependent on it, and the whole world hates it. We all understand this. But in other words, what we're going to have to do is to, to come up, what we will arrive at a transition away from this industry, one that's much more, I assume, ecologically friendly and has a, a much better impact or lower impact on the world. But the point remains, it's not just our energy infrastructure that depends on petroleum. Our entire financial the global financial structure is essentially a petroleum-dependent system in so many ways. And so um, there's going to be a lot of crazy valuations in the stock market in the uh, years, several years after this, and that's something that a lot of people will be concerned about. That's just one issue. That, that only scratches the surface because then once we... Uh, we get to a point where, let's say, because of the secret coming out, we have access to cheap, abundant energy. Well, my gosh, that, that will probably change our society in more ways than we can even imagine. Um, but certainly one thing it will do is make the world a much more interdependent place because any device that might heat your home forever for free might also be convertible into a really powerful explosive. And so there's going to be a lot of implications from any kind of so-called free energy that comes out of a disclosure event. That's just one issue is energy. And what, what kind of caveats would you throw out in terms of how uh, this, this whole plan towards disclosure might be uh, sort of going on behind the scenes that, that may have to do with the ETs themselves, actually? Yeah, this is uh, absolutely key, obviously. And, and there's so much uh, that we don't, I feel that we don't truly know about the nature of these other beings. In fact, in the book, we don't even call them ETs so much as others. Are they extraterrestrial? Well, maybe. Are they, are they from here? Well, maybe. Are they from another dimension of reality? Maybe. Are they from another time? Are they from another... Um, um, are they a lost human civilization? There, there are a number of possibilities, and what what Bryce and I tried not to do is to nail it down definitively as if we know. Mm-hmm. Um, but a great deal depends on, on what they are. A great deal depends on our perception of their intentions. A great deal depends on whether there's just one group or many groups. Uh, my, own, my own feeling, based on my own research, is that we're dealing with many types of groups with multiple agendas, not all of which may necessarily be in our best interest as a species of civilization. Other groups, I do feel, are we can probably um, 
um, conclude are, are at least, if not benign, then at least not malevolent. But I, I have a feeling that humanity right now is of prime interest to a lot of a lot of intelligences, and the reason is simply because of our own trajectory as a society, as a species. I mean, my God, in 100, 150 years, look what we've done. We've transformed ourselves. We went for thousands of years looking a certain way, and then suddenly, whammo, science and advanced industrialization. And now look at us. We're about to leap right into their world. We're right. a generation away from, from conscious computers and beyond. Richard, stay put. Victor, likewise, back with more of our discussion on The Day After Disclosure when The Conspiracy Show continues. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Let's talk about the panic uh, that will likely ensue the day after disclosure or the day of disclosure, uh, Richard Dolan. Uh, Because as I see it, this is going to be sort of a nexus for just about everything we talk about on this program. Some are going to see uh, disclosure as the great alien deception and, and some sort of uh, you know, satanic uh, agenda. Others are going to see this perhaps as the second coming. Others are going to see this as some sort of deception to, to uh, usher in a new world order. And on and on and on it goes. There's going to be mass confusion, uh, you know, what are they? Who are they? Who do we trust on this issue? But talk to me about what kind of panic we're going to see in the streets. Yeah, well, uh, I think we're, we have to expect that um, this a, a day of disclosure will be some, some people's best moments and other people's worst moments. Uh, we're all different in this world, and uh, anyone who goes to family reunions can see that. Um, in a microcosm, right? Indeed. Um, I think of some of some of the people that I'm very close to, and I can see that some of them will, would probably take this fairly well psychologically. Others, absolutely not well. And you know, for social panic to become an issue, you don't really need um, a large majority of the people going crazy. If you have ten percent, five percent of the people really losing it, okay for a certain period of time, that can be enough to cause some serious stress on the infrastructure in terms of police, in terms of ambulance, uh, you know, all the kinds of um, functions that municipalities and governments need to function. These could be and will be strained uh, to the max for quite some time in a post-disclosure setting. I don't really see any way to get around it. Uh, You know, a year ago in in this country, we had the swine flu scare, and, I mean, if you go look through uh, some Google images of uh, swine flu, uh, like stores that were essentially ransacked during the swine flu scare, you get an idea. Some of these places were trashed. Uh, and that's just swine flu, man. So in a disclosure situation, do you think people will be scarfing up all the toilet paper in a store? You know it. Uh, all of the cans of beans and everything else. Store shelves, uh, stores are, are very unlikely to be able to meet the demand. Of, uh, of, of what people are going to have. I mean, look, we just had in, in the U.S., the day after Thanksgiving is always known as Black Friday, and, and as we always have, there's injuries, police, um, 
all kinds of crazy stuff happens on Black Friday. People just lose it, and uh, that's just one shopping day. Disclosure is going to cause many, many more difficulties. People won't, some won't want to go to work. Um, there'll, there'll be infrastructure issues to deal with without a, quest, without a doubt. The thing, though, is that nobody, or very few people, are going to be in a position where they can afford to spend an indefinite amount of time running around in circles pulling the hair out of their head. They're going to have to get back to work. They're going to have to get back to their lives at some point. And so what I, what I think is that although there will be panic, um, it, it won't be of the kind that will be extended. Now, let me qualify that. Um, there are people in this world who are going to interpret this in very, very different ways. Uh, you go to a, a UFO conference. Forget the, the world of people that don't even believe in this. Just go to people who do believe in this. Go to a conference, and you'll find an incredible array of opinions on what these other beings are, uh, ranging from absolutely wonderful mentor spiritual beings who are going to bring us to the next level of consciousness uh, to others who believe that these are demonic Luciferian entities that are here to uh, stage a great deception, of uh, spiritual deception of mankind. There is no common ground between these types of belief systems. And so for any, let's say, president or prime minister or someone who's going to have to tell his or her country that this is real, the real problem they're going to have is they're going to need, if they want to maintain any sense of order, to provide a sufficient level of evidence that is going to persuade at least most of the people that they actually have the goods on this. And if, and if we're in an unsatisfactory situation where, like, where we can prove that, that, that the UFOs are real, but we can't prove who or what they, they are, and that might very well happen. You know, dude, let's say there's a mass sighting in which we, we can prove categorically that, that, yes, this is real, but that doesn't mean that, that um, we're in a position to know all of their intentions. If that's the case then I would pity any political leader who's in a position of, of trying to, uh, to speak to the public about this, because they're going to be in a tough spot. They're going to have to convince people of very, very disparate opinions that, um, of whatever it is that they think that the truth of this matter is. and They better have some very, very strong evidence at their disposal that's going to be it's going to be pretty tough to convince anybody of every of any of anything after this government uh, has been lying to the public well, for by this time probably close to 70 years that's absolutely richard absolutely i mean one of the other issues is and this is just yet another reason why the powers that be have no incentive ever for giving this secret up which is that look they've been implicated in lying for this is now a lifetime, literally a human lifetime worth of a lie about the, probably the most single, most important fact of our world. The coexistence of, with, of, of non-human, advanced non-human intelligences here interacting with us on planet Earth. I mean, my God, what can be bigger than that? And it's, it's been held back from us. We've had, had our future really held hostage by this secrecy. So there's going to be a lot of very angry people, and um, and clearly one of the questions that they're going to be asking is, how have you been able to keep this secret from us all these years? That's going to lead to some serious questions about manipulation of mainstream media, political world, the academic world. People are going to lose trust in all of those institutions. It's going, going to be another critically at them.
another cultural uh, counter-revolution, I would, I would guess. Absolutely. In fact, that's an, yet another of the, the um, um, postulates that Bryce and I put out, which is that, in a way, what we are li- likely to see after disclosure is a, is a kind of new version of the 1960s, in the sense of you'll have a great deal of, uh, of cultural strife, a lot of people, probably a lot of younger people in particular, who are going to look at the world and say, holy crap, you've been lying to us about this all, the, all these years, my whole lifetime. I'm not buying into it. I'm going, I'm looking at the future, and I'm going to look at the new reality, and I'm going to embrace this new reality. Whether it's positive or negative, they're going to embrace that reality. Um, and so we're going to be seeing some serious cultural wars at, at stake in, in the world, not just the U.S. or Canada, but everywhere. If I was the descendant of, uh, I don't know, Gus Grissom or Ed White or any of the people that were killed in the, the Mercury or the Gemini uh, programs uh, because they were using good old-fashioned rocket fuel when we know, when we'll know at the point of disclosure that they had anti-gravitic uh, devices uh, years before, perhaps. Right. Uh, I'm going to be looking for blood. Well, lawsuits are absolutely going to be a real issue in a post-disclosure world, and yet this is another topic that we really tried to handle in a way. I don't think anyone's really tried to raise these issues in any detailed way, but, but exactly. Um, not only that, but what about people who've had what they believe to be abduction experiences? Look, abduction phenomenon for many individuals are, are deeply traumatizing events, and yet they go through their lives, nearly all of these people, constrained and unable to talk about their experience. Why? Because they're afraid of being ridiculed. They don't want to deal with it. They don't have the stomach for it. And they have no one to talk to. I mean, I have spoken to many, many people who have had apparent abduction experiences, and I'll tell you, this is something that really, really disturbs and upsets them, and and they have no one to deal, to relate to. They're going to be very angry, because they are going to lash out, understandably, at the government's uh, and say, hey, you know what? You guys knew this, and and I was forced to live my whole life um, dealing with this trauma and and as an outcast and being ostracized because of it. And and I'll guarantee you, there will be many many lawyers willing to take up that case. It's going to be class action lawsuits, defense contractor lawsuits. One defense contractor has access to exotic ET technology. Let's say another one doesn't loses out on a contract. Um, I spoke to one insider years ago who said to me that this, that explicit scenario was one of the significant concerns because that the, uh, the idea of disclosure does come up at high levels every so often. And this was an issue. Lawsuits. Go figure. Such a mundane-sounding thing, but really it makes perfect sense. When you take a look, Richard, at how this thing could... Um could evolve and change uh, before the fact. And if some larger institution, let's just say for argument's sake, universities got a hold of this and, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a perfect world or in a better world, the universities began to put together some sort of ameliorating plan to discuss this thing on a large scale to help people prepare for this, you know, social agencies and hospitals and psychologists. Um, would, would the academic world be able to swallow that big pill in advance of that to prepare people, or is this just a non sequitur? Um, great question. Uh, I, I personally have the opinion that the academic world is not capable of dealing with this until the shock is going to be upon them. Uh, they're in the same position that the mainstream media is in, 
and they're in the same position that the political uh, world political culture is in, which is that they have bought into uh, the fiction for their entire, you know, for the lives of everyone involved in it, and there is absolutely no way, none, that these people are going to be able to break out of that until they're forced to, which will be at the 11th hour and 59 minutes uh, before disclosure. Too late. And then you'll see it. Uh, Many people's careers will, will probably go up in smoke, but other people will have their careers made um, at the same time. What you've uh, described, incidentally, is really one of the main themes of, of Chapter 9 of this book, which is uh, we called Exopolitics Rising. And um, what I tried to lay out, what Bryce and I really talked a lot about, was not necessarily what the universities would do, but what responsible political leaders need to do. Uh, as a result of disclosure. In other words, we're going to need, as a species, as a civilization, to rethink our entire global organization, how we relate to each other. One of the things we're going to have to do is develop a way, once there's a disclosure, to move the human race off of petroleum as our fundamental source of power and onto whatever, presumably, uh, is the secret behind UFO propulsion, whether it is zero-point energy, whether it's controlled nuclear fusion, whatever it is. There's going to be something that's there that we're going to need to move to in a coordinated way. Um, another thing that a, a responsible political leadership is going to have to do is to get control over the black ops, black budget world that has taken this secret away. One of the key um, elements of this book that I think is, is something new to the UFO research world is uh, an idea that I really developed actually in, in my last book, that of a breakaway civilization. I developed this in volume two of UFOs in the National Security State. What I think has actually happened is imagine the black budget world with infinite money to play with and exotic ET technology to study and lots and lots of time. At a certain point, what I argue is not only do they come up with technological breakthroughs that make them money, like better integrated circuits or fiber optics or what have you, but also other breakthroughs that maybe they can't share with the world, breakthroughs like anti-gravity, breakthroughs like uh, maybe biotech developments in aging, anti-aging, who knows. But I believe that these breakthroughs have been made at the deeply classified level, breakthroughs that have allowed them to leapfrog, as it were, scientifically, way past the rest of us poor slobs here, so much so that they might almost be considered a separate civilization at this point, a breakaway civilization. And it is my contention that this black-budget world is essentially, these are the guys calling the shots, and that it's going to have to be the job of, of the U.S. president and other responsible political leaders to get control back from these black ops uh, groups from Majestic, from these these breakaway civilization groups. Um, and I think that a post-disclosure world is the perfect time and opportunity, and maybe the only time and opportunity that we will have to open that world, to shed light on it, and for us as citizens of the world to gain, regain control over what is supposed to be our political system, which has been taken away from us. Mm -hmm. Let me just throw you, um, uh, not a scenario necessarily, but a, a two contrasting ideas. The idea of disclosure and, and before and after and all of that, along with the idea of contact. 
and the, the sort of the overt uh, manifestation of whoever these, these others might be. How, how do you make a distinction between that, and how, how do you see that kind of thing, uh, part and parcel being one of the other, part of another, or how, how do you look at that? Yeah, it, it, again, this is a very fair question, and uh, not, not an easy one to answer, mm-hmm. because, again, there are the, going to be these variables as to who these others are. Let, let's, let's look at some possibilities, though. Um, I will uh, lay out the situation as I personally think it is likely that it is, which is that there are these beings, uh, we call them the greys. They're here. Uh, They have access to very, very advanced technology. They abduct people. They have an interest in our genetics. Um, There are, let's assume that there are other beings, we we sometimes call them the Nordics or the Blondes, or um, uh, they look human. Uh, In other words, there are what appear to be very human-looking, but they're not necessarily like us, whatever these beings are. Um, There are beings that are often described as reptoid-like, reptilians. Um, Are these three types of groups here? My own feeling is probably they are. Um, There are other groups as well that, in my own research, my own personal research, I've been looking into this enough time myself now, uh, leads me to believe that there are entities that are what we would call dimensional. I don't know where these people, beings, inhabit. It's not our reality. They come into our reality, and sometimes then they leave our reality. Um, do they have an agenda? I don't know every single answer to this, but what I can say is that some of these beings seem to be interacting with us in ways that we would consider to be negative. Um, certainly, uh, I would not want to leave my children alone in a room with some of these creatures, as I've uh, been learning about at least what they appear to be all about. Uh, some of them seem to be wonderful, and others not so much. And so what, what will happen is that the world, we're going to have two minds about our military. We're going to be really, really ticked off because they've lied to us all these years. But people are still going to gravitate to the military because they're going to want protection. Um, this is how I interpret it. Now, at the same time, there's going to be groups of people who will, who will interpret all of this as a ruse. They're going to say, well, wait a minute, there's, there are no, these hostile ETs, that's a fiction. And uh, this is only a one-world government scheme to scare the hell out of you so that you embrace a global dictatorship. Uh, I'm not saying this is going to be an easy situation to resolve. Of course not. My own, my own sense of the matter is, is that there is an ET presence here, not all of which is necessarily something that we should trust. It's also possible, Richard, and we'll, we'll step away here for a moment, that, uh, I mean, it doesn't necessarily follow that contact, a contact event, will follow any time soon after oh, exactly. disclosure. Exactly. It could be a thousand years. Correct. Correct. All right, let's... Uh, disclosure doesn't mean that we're going to be in communication. Exactly. And for some people, disclosure won't mean anything without contact. It won't be real until... They can see it, feel it, touch it for themselves. All right, back with uh, more of our discussion with Richard Dolan, AD After Disclosure, The People's Guide to Life After Contact. Victor, Victor Vigiani in studio. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. The Honorable Paul Hellyer, former Defence Minister of Canada and Deputy Prime Minister, will join us in about 15 minutes' time and he'll drop some bombs concerning UFOs and why we're not getting disclosure. That's right, you'll actually hear the words shadow government come from a man who is a heartbeat away from 24 Sussex Drive. What else do you need? Richard Dolan is uh, with us, the co-author, along with Bryce Zabel of AD After Disclosure, The People's Guide to uh, Life After uh, Contact. Uh, Richard, Victor, and I were just uh, talking during the break and, and wondering... I'm wondering whether it it might not be possible for Majestic to keep a lid on this indefinitely, uh, given the way that, that, that people have been anesthetized and, and uh, uh, dumbed down and distracted. Uh, you can show somebody incontrovertible proof about just about anything. You can say, look, and here's a sworn affidavit from three million, million eyewitnesses. Here's the DNA sample. Here's a photograph. Here's a video. Here's the body. And they just look at you and say, yeah, well, so what? Uh, it's, it's a great argument, and uh, I, I will admit I wonder this myself. But the reason that I don't agree with it is is for the following rate, is, is as follows. Look, we are, right now it's the year 2010, almost 2011. Um, we are you know, I talked about the rate of change in our society, and, but one thing I didn't really get into was some of the details of what our world is probably going to look like in 10, 20 years from now, 20 years from now. Uh, we are, to, to say that this is a revolutionary period of change doesn't really do justice to it. We are um, a generation away probably from having your computer being able to seem and act like it's conscious. Uh, to be able to talk with you, in other words, but not just talk with you, but be able to do so with an IQ of maybe, I don't know, 500. Uh, it'll have total web access all the time. It won't need to sleep. Um, it'll be able to think deeply about all kinds of matters. So that, in other words, the leading intelligence of our own civilization is about to dramatically go upward. Now, it's true that that could mean that uh, the ability to dominate the the great unwashed so to speak is going to increase as well but there's going to be a group a large group of humanity that is going to be on the fast track as i see it in the next 20 years uh and it just seems to me you know if you look at our world now and you look at us say in 100 years go go a century ahead from us from where we're at and and ask yourself, are we really going to be at a point where we're not going to have the ability as a society to prove once and for all that there are other beings that are inhabiting this world with us? And I think that we will have that ability. And so then the question for me becomes, well, when are we going to reach that threshold between now and a century from now? Will it be 20 years from now? Will it be 10? Will it be tomorrow? Will it be 50 years? I don't know when it's going to be, but I believe it will happen. Now, what will be the trigger? 
I don't, again, I don't know what that trigger will be. I, I hypothesize that it might be a mass sighting, but it could be other things as well. Uh, granted, people are, you know, surprisingly immune to evidence. <laughs> if you show someone who's there, you know, they've matured, they've grown up, they've formed their beliefs, they're set in cement, as it were. People don't change. But here's the thing. Whereas people don't change, their children do, and especially their grandchildren do. So generations do change. And uh, again, I, I simply argue that for us to assume that the world is going to stay in a 2010 holding pattern indefinitely, I just think it's not going to happen. We are changing. We are the dynamic in this equation. It, secrecy could last forever if nothing else changed. But of course, in our world, everything is changing. So well, I think it will break. With Moore's Law, uh, we could uh, we could end up having technology here on, uh, on, on planet Earth, which is going to bring about its own uh, cultural uh, upheaval, uh, civil disobedience, and Absolutely. so forth, never mind what's going out, out there in, 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 uh, in outer space. Absolutely. In so, fact, we're seeing it now. It's happening now. I mean, it might even, the, the disclosure might even, poss- conceivably, could even pale to what's happening here on Earth. Or am I... Overreaching no, you're, not, you're not wrong. I think you're exactly right. One of the uh, segments that I wrote toward the end of the book, I did a section on science in here, and I did a section, uh, subsection called Disclosure and the Singularity. And the singularity in uh, the, the parlance of AI, artificial intelligence, the singularity is the moment when computing intelligence exceeds human intelligence, and this is very much talked about. Um, and one of the things that I, I personally have tried to understand is what will happen first? Will disclosure happen first, or will the singularity happen first? And my feeling is, and this is just my guess, is that disclosure will happen first, but maybe not long before the singularity. In other words, we will get to a point where disclosure is forced the closer and closer we get to the uh, the singularity. Well, maybe that's what Majestic is counting on. It'll somewhat... I don't know, uh, not nullify, but, uh, you know, it's just like, well, okay, fine, yes, we are being visited by ETs, but I'm just about ready to re-sleeve my consciousness, so if you'll excuse me a minute. <laughs> or or, or the, the other side of that one, it's something that I've thought about a lot, is if this contact does happen in the way that we all kind of think it might, I mean, there's going to be a lot of people thinking to themselves, okay, contact, someplace I can go, get me off this godforsaken planet tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. One thing I hope happens is that many of us have a moment when we, if we do actually have some kind of contact occurring in some way, or even if it's not direct contact, but maybe some indirect knowledge, that uh, many of us might just have a moment where we're sitting by ourselves and saying, oh my God, I've been wasting my entire life doing, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. In other words, with the realization that there are beings out there, in fact, beings right here, who are operating intellectually and maybe spiritually, maybe, on levels beyond what we here typically do. I mean, most of, most of us go through our lives kind of comatose, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we wake up, we get washed up, we go brush our teeth, and we go off to work, and we do our thing, and we come home, we watch some TV, have a beer, and do whatever. And that's our life. Mm-hmm. And there's often not a lot of higher consciousness involved in that, right? And I, I really believe that with the shock and awe of being confronted with another species that is 
clearly more advanced in certain ways than we are. But this is going to make a lot of us, yes, we'll be insecure, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be shocked and so forth for a while, but ultimately, I think it will wake up many, many people. And in fact, that more than anything else, I think, will trigger humanity to a new growth in consciousness, or like a real higher consciousness, uh, something that will enable us to become more aware of our world and our lives than we have ever been before. The Conspiracy Show, back with more. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Just a, uh, a couple of minutes left in the segment before we uh, usher in the Honorable Paul Hellyer. So, Victor, why don't you take it home with uh, Richard Dolan? I just, you've obviously given this a lot of thought, uh, the, the two of you, you know, Bryce and yourself. What, what do you think, I mean, in the next, you know, two minutes or less, uh, like how do we prepare for this? Like, really, I mean, in, in practical terms, it's, it may sound like a mundane question, but I mean, how do we as a, as a civilization prepare for this? Well, that's a great question, Victor. I, I guess uh, one of the things that uh, I really tried to end the book with was a message, and the message is no fear. Uh, if there's one thing that we really have to remember is that people throughout history have dealt with tremendous challenges and difficulties and crises and catastrophes throughout. I mean, for as long as there's been human beings, we've, we've had really difficult things that we've had to overcome. And, and this will be another of those things uh, on, on one level. Uh, it, it's something that we will live through. We'll survive it. It'll be uh, traumatic for many people, and it'll be exhilarating for just as many people. Um, I guess to prepare, the one thing is to, um, to get our heads screwed on right, which is simply to uh, become as conscious and as aware of the reality of uh, the presence of these others, these non-humans that are here behind the UFO phenomenon, uh, to study, to learn, and not to be afraid to, to speak out, by the way, and to, to speak to other people in a rational, calm way. I think that's probably the single best thing that we as um, individuals can do. What's going to happen to historians after disclosure, Richard? Oh, well, his, history, like many other disciplines, is, is going to continue, but it will be, we're going to see a lot of historical revision, won't we? The entire secret history of the last 70-plus years is going to be rewritten, uh, and a lot, a lot of um, new interpretations of, uh, of major political events. The Cold War, for example, is going to be completely re-understood. Uh, that's only the beginnings. The world of science is going to go through a tremendous revolution as well. And um, I, I would encourage people to visit our uh, blog website, which is afterdisclosure.com, uh, where Bryce and I have something new coming up just about every single day there, and you can learn a lot about the book. The introduction of the book is online. You can just read it. Also go to my website, which is keyholepublishing.com, and that's got all the information you want. Keyholepublishing.com, afterdisclosure.com. I would, I would encourage people to go check it out. Richard, after disclosure, you are going to be very busy. <laughs> well, many of us will be, I suspect, right? <laughs> all right, my friend. Thank you for this. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. The Honorable Paul Hellyer talks secret cabals and the truth about UFOs. When the Conspiracy Show continues with Victor Vigiani and yours truly, Richard Serrett. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds, 
We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You eat like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. By our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Live from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. In September 2005, he sent shockwaves through the UFO disclosure movement when he went public with his belief that UFOs are real, as real as the planes flying above us in the sky. He served as the defense minister under the liberal Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson in the 1960s, and uh, he's here with a, a new book entitled Light at the End of the Tunnel, A Survival Plan for the Human Species. The Honorable Paul Hellyer, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. It's nice to be here. Thank you. And uh, seated next to you, uh, a gentleman that was um, in many ways uh, responsible for sort of orchestrating that uh, monumental occasion, I guess, at the University of uh, Toronto back in September 2005, and he is the uh, Media Relations Director for Exopolitics Canada and uh, a good friend of The Conspiracy Show, Victor Vigiani. How are you? Just fine, Richard, and great to be with you once again, as usual. Do you have any regrets, uh, uh, Paul, about, any regrets at all about um, speaking out uh, about UFOs in 2005? Absolutely none. I, if I have any regret, it's that I just wasn't uh, in the know to the point where I could have uh, done it five years earlier uh, so that we could uh, try and get this issue into the public domain. And uh, I guess any surprise I have is that uh, year after year, we're getting a little more publicity in the mainline press, but uh, still the United States government uh, doesn't officially recognize that UFOs are real and... Uh, they're living this dream and uh, not telling the people the truth, and we've got to keep pressing them until they eventually come clean and let us know what's going on. You mentioned, had you known uh, earlier, your one regret might be that you would have spoken out about it five years earlier. Imagine had you spoken out about it in the year 2000 or 1995. or I mean, how far back, let's say you were still defense minister and you had this sort of information. Would you have spoken out then? I really don't know, because I don't know whether I would have been under any constraint from the government. Uh, presumably, there's some sort of an agreement between the government of Canada and the government of the United States, uh, but I don't even know about it. And if I didn't know about it then, I don't officially know about it now. So uh, I, I can't... Uh, that's a hypothetical question, and uh, you can only think you would like to be honest and tell the truth, but uh, I, I, it's easy for me to say now because I'm, I'm not there. Victor... Mm -hmm. Take us back to uh, to 2005. 
and how this whole thing came together and your, your involvement yeah. uh, in it. Well, we were doing the radio program, uh, Strange Days Indeed, with Errol Bruce Knapp at the time on CFRB, and we finished a show, I forget exactly when it was, uh, Richard, uh, but it was one evening, late one evening, as those shows usually happen. And uh, I got a call from an individual uh, who knows Paul, and, uh, and I didn't know that then, and he said, I have someone who you need to talk to. And um, at that point, I was sort of, you know, who was it? I'll call you tomorrow and we can talk. So it was we ended the call in the CFRB studio at the time. And the next day, I spoke with this individual who was a, a friend of Paul's. And he said, I, th I think it's it's time that uh, you spoke with uh, with Mr. Hellyer about this issue. And I had no idea at the time that, that Paul had even any remote interest in it. Um, and when I did call him initially, uh, I think you, you said you, Paul was a little nonplussed about it. He was a little reluctant to even kind of take up the gauntlet at that point. Um, well, he was right. I didn't have yeah, any interest in it at, at that time. At that time. And then, <clears throat> um, no, any not, interest in, in, in going public, you mean? Or even... Well, I, I just didn't know enough about the issue. Okay, yeah. yeah. And uh, I guess at that time, I, I said, my goodness, this, this individual, why would this other individual point me towards Paul? And uh, at that point, I said, well, Mr. Hellyer, I think we have to talk some more. And I think after that, the evolution of you reading um, the day after Roswell, I'm not sure what came first. Either you spoke to the general um, next or you read the book. And then uh, one of your one of your relatives spoke to you and said, listen, I think you should talk to this general. I'm not sure of the sequence of how those things happened. But following all of that machination, I spoke to Paul again um, a couple of times after that. And he said, and we were planning, Michael Bird and I were planning the, uh, the symposium at the University of Toronto Convocation Hall that following September in 205. And uh, I was asking Paul to come forward, perhaps to be one of the keynote speakers there. And he then um, acquiesced, I guess, either through my arm twisting or fate or <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what well, it was. Well, let me tell you my side of the story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, um, it's a little different. <clears throat> uh, Richard and Mike Bird sent me this invitation. You mean Victor? Victor, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the I made that mistake uh, once before. <laughs> so forgive me, uh, Richard. Victor. <laughs> that's, okay. that's okay, Frank. <laughs> but um, the two of them sent me this invitation to, uh, to speak to their convocation at the, uh, at the uh, University of Toronto. And I intended to say no. Oh, Be really? Oh, because I had nothing to say. At that point, right. Yeah. Right. And... Um, I had had for several years information being sent to me by a chap by the name Pierre Junot, a young uh, businessman from Ottawa at that time, and I'd been too busy to read it. And he had been very patient with me, and I had, uh, you know, said I was level. I leveled with him. I said, you know, I just don't have time to read this, but if I ever do, I, I will because uh, you've been very patient with me. And he, of course. <clears throat> When ABC ran the two-hour special, Peter Jennings' special, he said, no, you have to watch this and see what uh, Jennings has to say about it. And I did. And I found it very convincing. And uh, I must say that that sort of increased my general level of interest in the subject. But then that summer, um, when I was looking for a book to uh, take on holiday, I was looking for another book. The year before, I was looking for the the one that uh, Juno had sent me the day after Roswell, uh, Colonel Phil, Philip Corso, and I uh, couldn't find it. And then this uh, year, 2005, I guess it was, um, 
I was looking for another book, couldn't find it, and there was The Day After Roswell Staring Me in the Face. So I took it and started to read it and was absolutely fascinated. And I, uh, I thought to myself, could this possibly be fiction? Because I don't read much fiction, but the year before I'd read The Life of Pi and uh, couldn't really tell until the end whether it was fiction or, or fact. <clears throat> In this case, I said, uh, this, this is, sounds real to me because I know the places and names that he's talking about. Some of the names of some of the generals and the the uh, air bases and so on. Excuse me, uh, uh, Paul. Th- were were these names or places familiar to you because, uh, in your role as Defense Minister of Canada, you met certain individuals, etc. I knew their names in that context. Right. Yes, when I was minister, <clears throat> and so uh, I read the book and was about halfway through or more, and uh, sitting there, my nephew came along and said. What are you reading? I told him. He said, well, I'm skeptical. I said, well, it's a free country. You can be skeptical if you want to. And he went home and a couple of days later phoned me back and said, uh, uh, I talked to the general and told him what you were reading. And he said, every word of it is true and more. And uh, where can I get a copy? So I told him. In the meantime, I had finished the book and... uh, come to the conclusion that I had to say something because there were policy issues. You know, what were the United States Air Force doing with the extraterrestrials? Were they trying to shoot them down? Did they still consider them enemy aliens? One might ask, do they still now, today, in 2010? And uh, what kind of trouble can they get us into if they are treating these people as enemy aliens? And... uh, and trying to uh, to deal with them in a military fashion. And so um, I, I decided I had to say something, but before I did, I just wanted the additional a- affirmation of talking to the general. I had met him at an air show, and so uh, Philip gave him a heads up that I would be calling and, and gave me his telephone number, and I called him, and he said, right off the bat, every word is true and more. And we spend about 20 minutes talking about the and more, which was quite fascinating. Fascinating. He went about as far as he could go without breaking his oath. Let's, uh, let me just uh, stop you there, uh, uh, Paul. Wh- why don't we get into the and more when we come back? The Honorable Paul Hellyer in studio with me on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740, along with Victor Vigiani from Exopolitics Canada. The former defense minister of this country says UFOs are real. He's talked to a four-star general in the United States who has confirmed the details in Colonel Phil Corso's book, The Day After Roswell. We're talking UFO crash retrieval. We're talking alien bodies. All true. Back with more in a moment. In search of sunken cities and weird science, mythical beasts, and modern-day bloodsuckers, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett continues from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. I'm sitting across from you, Mr. Hellier, In the Trudeau cabinet, in the Trudeau government, you were literally, I mean, I I think the post at that time was called senior cabinet secretary or senior cabinet. I mean, you were literally, in effect, the the deputy prime minister. Yes, I was a senior minister. I was acting prime minister when Trudeau was away. 
And uh, they later designated that post to Deputy Prime Minister, yes. I mean, to me, here you are, a heartbeat away from being the Prime Minister of this country, and hearing what is coming out of your mouth. Do you have, this may sound like a silly question, but do you have any sense of the, like the gravitas, uh, you know, when, when this type of information comes from someone as distinguished and credible as you, the shock waves, I mean, every time you open your mouth and speak about this, it's, I get chills because of your, again, your gravitas. Well, I just hope it has some effect. It uh, hasn't had very much so far, I don't think, although it has convinced a few of my friends who uh, know me and some who have read the book and said, well, if it was anybody else but you saying it, we wouldn't believe it. But because it's you, we do believe it. And that is encouraging. And that, of course, is part of the reason. It's not the main reason that I wrote the book. Uh, because the main reason, as you know, was because I feel the the earth is in great trouble and we're going to have to do something about it and do it fast. But because this issue is related to saving the world from global warming, uh, was, a, I thought, a, a, an extra reason why I had to go public and put in my book a good primer on this subject so that people who were skeptical would become interested in it and perhaps uh, spend a little more time finding out about it. Victor, I, I want you to jump here in a second. I just, I just want to get back to the Philip Corso uh, book, The Day After Roswell, and this conversation with the four-star general. You can't identify him, but is he still serving in that capacity? No, he's, he's been out of the, he was out of the um, Air Force then, and he's, uh, he's in industry. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I'm not able to disclose his name. When he was telling you that all the things in Corso's book are, are correct, and we're talking about alien bodies being recovered from the crash site uh, near Corona in 1947, why did you believe him? Well, the main thing he told me that wasn't in uh, Corso's book was that there had been direct uh, uh, meetings between United States officials and uh, extraterrestrials. That was the, the principal thing that he told me that uh, I didn't already know. And, and why, why did you believe him? Uh, because I, he's an honorable man, as I have tried to be all my life, and I would have no reason not to believe him. Yeah, I think that's one of the key points uh, that we have to come to grips with, with some of the military people that are coming forward uh, even today. A good example is, is Captain Robert Salas with the uh, the nuclear installation shutdown of missiles and the other six or seven um, officers that came forward at the press club on September 27th, plus the other 100-plus that... Uh, um, Robert Hastings has interviewed. There is absolutely no reason why these military, this many military men, would come forward under these circumstances to say such an incredulous thing about their experiences with regard to to, uh, to UFOs. And so you have good reason to have um, you know, taken this man into confidence and to trust his judgment. So I think that Paul coming forward, and when he did come forward at Convocation Hall on that day, September 25th, 205, and I remember the day I, as vividly as we're sitting here right now and him you walking into the uh, Convocation Hall and sitting down and, uh, and then waiting his turn to go up to the podium. And literally you could hear a pin drop and there was uh, almost 500 people there in the room. And once Paul gave his um, his uh, his presentation, uh, it was just a thundering, an absolute explosion of applause right after it. Not for necessarily what he said, and that was earth-shattering enough, but just with the conviction that uh, that he used in presenting his information and a man of his status, um, it was 
I think it was a, one of the most significant um, incidents in, in Canadian history. And um, Stephen Bassett was interviewed on a, on a key film a couple of, um, couple of months ago, which, which is out now. We can talk about it on another show. But Stephen Bassett made a very good observation. He said, if this stuff comes through in disclosure, and when it does, we are going to be in a position of rewriting the history of the 20th century. And he said, con conceivably, rewriting the history of the world. So I think in, in the context of what Paul did, he, in fact, enabled us to rewrite Canadian history in doing what he did. And like you said, Richard, uh, being a heartbeat away from being the Prime Minister of Canada and using it, that type of, um, I guess, that type of podium, that kind of gravitas that you say, was, uh, in, my, in my estimation, one of the most significant incidents in, in Canadian history. I subsequently met uh, Salas in Hawaii when I was down there as a keynote speaker the following uh, June, and, um, and bought dinner for him, as a matter of fact, and his wife. And I have a report of his uh, experience in my book. And, um, I, you know, he's the kind of man I wouldn't even consider him not being totally honorable and telling the truth. And the same, uh, I think, uh, Chuck Holt, Colonel Charles Holt, spoke at the, uh, at the press conference, too. And I spent a lot of time with him and uh, did a long interview, and I have a long section of the interview in my book, because here's a no-nonsense colonel, half-colonel at the time, full colonel leader, United States Air Force, and he wouldn't, he would no more lie to you, something like that, than the man in the moon. Just absolutely straight on everything. The, the four-star general, again, getting back to him, how, how was he in a position to know? Was he uh, a, a witness or did he see documents? How was, did, he, did he get into that, how he knew? No, no, except he'd, uh, he'd met uh, Corso personally and uh, had some relationship with him. You know, this coming from you, sir, I don't see any difference than if, for example, I don't know, let's say Mark Lalonde, former finance minister, former energy minister, doing the same thing. Uh, or, uh, hmm, and I'm, I'm trying to think, Ed Broadbent, standing up in front of a podium and announcing to the world that UFOs are real. And yet, why isn't this front page news in the, the national newspaper, the Toronto Star, what have you? Uh, the same thing, of course, when Edgar Mitchell sixth man to walk on the moon comes forward. To me, this is proof positive that there is some media complicity in this cover-up. Would you agree? I suspect there is. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there is in the States, and I don't know just how much there is here. But there's a lot of skepticism, because I was in Montreal at the 1st of October for uh, my fifth wedding anniversary. I didn't say earlier that... Uh, when uh, Mike and Victor <laughs> invited me there, I was getting married a week later, so I had to phone my bride and ask her, you know, tell her about it. And I assured her it was just a one-off thing, and of course that would be the end of it, <clears throat> which turned out not to be true. Has she I, forgiven you? I think so, yes. <laughs> a little did it's she not, know. <laughs> it's not her favorite subject, but she is a believer now. She knows that, uh, that they exist. But, uh, no, I... I uh, I just uh, really wish that people would pay. Oh, what I was going to say, yeah, there had been a sighting the night before. In and, Montreal? Yeah. 
And there was a little thing on the front page. And the story was on the inside page. And uh, there was a, uh, the headline was, UFO sighting question mark. I thought to myself, that is ridiculous. This was a, a well-known, thoroughly believable medical doctor on his way home late at night had seen it. Not alone, but there, there were other people who saw it. And subsequently, a friend of mine verified that there had been uh, radar sightings uh, from the, uh, the airport, from the Trudeau Airport in downtown Montreal. So it was as legitimate as anything. And I thought to myself, well, if this had been an accident or a fire or something, and the doctor had phoned in and reported it, they wouldn't have put a question mark after it. And so I, I'm thinking maybe I should try and do an op-ed uh, piece uh, sometime along, you know, within a little while and uh, just talk about a, the history of Canadian involvement going back to uh, a Smith, or Hubert Smith, uh, before I actually became Minister of Transport because I went to transport after uh, defense. And then the involvement of Dr. Oman Salant, uh, who I knew very well, and uh, who was the first chairman of the Defense Research Board and later chancellor of the University of Toronto. And I had a chance to uh, spend some time with his daughter, one of his daughters, uh, this uh, just a few, three or four months ago. And uh, I am absolutely convinced that he was in the know, in the loop, and that there's quite a history of Canadian involvement in this uh, UFO thing, if we can just dig it out. Well, I, I think what's also remarkable is that you weren't in the know as defense minister. And, and what does that say about the, the structure of government? We'll get into that when we come back with the Honorable Paul Hellyer, former defense minister and uh, deputy prime minister of this country, Victor Vigiani from Exopolitics Canada, back with more here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We're back with Paul Hellyer. The book is Light at the End of the Tunnel, A Survival Plan for the Human Species. And Victor Vigiani from Exopolitics Canada. Victor, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, I just wanted to um, to say something about the book itself. Um, when Paul first gave me the manuscript to read, which um, I think we probably needed a forklift to move it from <laughs> from one desk to another, um, I, I, I read it uh, over a period of time, and I, you know, the, the content of the book was absolutely magnificent, uh, as much as you did write to begin with, and then after the editing process went along, uh, I would just like to say that in reading the book, especially uh, certain there's, there's some chapters on the economics uh, you know, setting in the world right now, and UFOs, of course. But you have to read the book in order to hear Paul speak. And as we've heard him speak this evening, that's what you get in the book. You can actually hear this man speaking as you read the book. It's, it's that fluidly written. Um, and it's, if, I would highly recommend um, that you pick up the book and read it because it is absolutely um, a, a fine read and uh, just chock full of information and some perspectives that you would not imagine um, a Canadian having and espousing publicly because there's some pretty pointed things that you say about world economics and religion too um, and in addition to the, uh, to the whole idea of UFOs. If you knew then what you knew now I just I can't imagine how this country, how this world uh, would would be different. Uh, do you ever reflect on that? 
if you were defense minister and you had this knowledge, I mean, I know that, that there may have been certain controls in place uh, regarding, uh, I mean, I know the book is not only about, uh, you know, the UFO issue, and we'll certainly have to have you back to talk about, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, the whole money, uh, the creation of money uh, at some point. But if you were in a position to speak back in the 1960s, if you had this knowledge back then, how do you think the world would be different? I really don't know. If I'd ha- I know if I'd had the job of a finance minister at any time, the world would have been very, very different. <laughs> we wouldn't have had these huge debts that we have at the present time, and we wouldn't have uh, the private bankers running the world uh, the way they are. And what I allege in the book is that probably the same group of private bankers who are running the world are the ones who have direct influence, if not control, on the, the business of making the extraterrestrial presence known. Because they're all in the same boat somehow. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And I say in the book that I think the United States has developed exotic fuels with the help of the extraterrestrials. And I am convinced that this group of insiders, the elite insiders, who have brought on the terrible recession that we have at the present time are the same ones who are keeping a lot of this information out of the public domain and uh, and really that they have to be held responsible for it in the years ahead. Which, which I think really goes back to the question that you asked, Richard, in terms of uh, media control, because if you take a look at the individuals that Paul's alluding to beyond the sphere of the UFO cover-up in terms of military, in terms of world control of information, the flow of information, the flow of money, they're virtually all the same people. And when you look at who owns CBS, General Electric, and when you look at who owns NBC, and when you look at who owns ABC, Disney, these people are at, at levels, uh, the rarefied levels of control that we as individuals, at least I count myself as, as one, uh, just a plebeian basically, that we have no idea the level of control these individuals have about the flow of money and the flow of information. So there reaches a choke point in financial machinations where money gets usurped or dealt with in, in a different way, uh, the $700 billion uh, buyout that uh, the United States just capitulated to a little while ago is a good example of that. And in addition to that, the choke point that CBS will reach in not having this information on its major news programs. It'll have it on CBS uh, in Des Moines, Iowa or Spokane, Washington, but it won't let it get on national television on 60 Minutes. And there's something drastically wrong and something controlling about why that happens. And that's the choke point or the glass ceiling that I allude to. And Paul's exactly right in terms of who's controlling those both flows of information. Paul, just to be clear, you're, you're, you're telling us that there is, in fact, a shadow government, a cabal, that an, an, a group of unelected oligarchs that not only runs this country, it runs the world. Primarily, yes. It, it, there's a one that runs the United States. There's a shadow government that has more influence in this country than just about any politician you can name. And, um, and they do have control over much of the world, particularly what we call the old world, the European world, and the United States and Canada and so on, Australia. And probably less uh, with the, the emerging, emerging nations. But uh, it's, it's a, a devastating control, and 
as far as the system is concerned, they have the banking system has made slaves of the people of the world. We are really slaves. So you know, you have a, a war in the United States, a civil war to liberate the slaves, and then you adopt a banking system which makes everybody slaves, red and yellow, black and white. And so we're all spending most of our time working. I don't know if you saw the headline in the uh, Toronto Globe and Mail recently, 40, over $40 trillion debt, government debt, in the, in the old world. And in Canada, $1.26, $37,000 per person. You know, that's per person, not just for a family of four when you multiply it out. And look at that kind of, of albatross hanging over our heads and the interest that we have to pay on that money. And under the present system, no possible chance of ever paying it off. So it's a desperate situation. And talk about a cover-up. Until recently, I had said that covering up the ET presence and technology was the biggest cover-up in the history of the world. Well, I've changed my tune, <laughs> and I now think that the cover-up of the banking system, the banking world by banking monopoly, is the most successful cover-up because they've managed to do that for about two centuries. And uh, we have to expose them both, and we have to do that right very soon if there's going to be any help, hope for the planet. Because there was another headline uh, just read uh, recently from New York Times about global warming and how they're already beginning to make plans to save the coastal cities because the water's going to come up so fast. Didn't say anything about stopping global warming, but they've got to make plans to save the global cities. And it's going to cost trillions, and it's, it's just going to be a terrible mess unless we turn the situation around and, as I said before, and do it very, very quickly. Well, you know, if you look back uh, throughout history, some of the heavyweights that have um, elected uh, officials, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli uh, talked about the unseen hand. John F. Kennedy talked about secret societies being the scourge of uh, any civilized nation. And now we can add the Honorable Paul Hellyer to that distinguished list. And we will continue our conversation about the fact that UFOs, he says, are real. Victor Vigiani in studio from Exopolitics Toronto as well. My name is Richard Serrett, back with more of The Conspiracy Show here on AM740. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. What a complete honor and privilege to have the Honorable Paul Hellyer with us. His new book is Light at the End of the Tunnel, a survival plan for the human species. And also uh, with us tonight is Victor Vigiani from Exopolitics Canada. Victor, you and I have had this conversation many times uh, over the years, uh, and that is uh, trying to grapple with the whole issue. Uh, are these biological, uh, extraterrestrial biological entities, are they friends or are they foe? And uh, I continue to grapple uh, w with the issue. I, I, I want to get uh, a Paul's take. I mean, you, you seem convinced, maybe I'm, I'm uh, rushing to judgment here, but you seem convinced, Paul, that they do uh, have our best intentions 
uh, in mind? That is my uh, that is my opinion. Yes, I think the uh, they are benign. I have heard that um, in one of the briefings for one of the presidents, they said they're all benign except one species. They didn't name the species, uh, as far as I know, and I would like to know which one they're talking about, if there's one that uh, is not uh, totally friendly, and, uh, and be able to put it in the context of the number of species that have been visiting and still are visiting this, uh, this uh, planet of ours. And um, what I'm afraid of is, though, that the, some of the statements and some of the disinformation being put out is going to create the impression that they're not friendly. Um, going right back again to, to Smith, uh, the Department of Transport, years ago, so these people really want to help us build a better world, and what they're talking about is fantastic, and we should get on with the job. And uh, what a change uh, there would have been in the world if uh, if it had been public at that time and we'd started cooperating with them uh, positively. And so I believe that to be true, and I, I still think it's, uh, it's probably true. I know uh, that uh, some of the species have been working with the United States government in the field of technology. I just had the... Uh, privilege of few, well, but I guess it was uh, four weeks ago, or three weeks ago, of spending a long period on the phone with uh, Charles Hall, uh, who had worked uh, in the uh, Nevada desert, an approving range, at least a, a firing range there. He was a, a meteorologist, I believe, was he not? Yeah, he was. He was an intelligence officer who was sent out to do meteorology, presumably because they thought his uh, personality was one of the few that could cope with the living and working in the presence of, uh, of the extraterrestrials. The tall whites. Exactly. And so uh, he, he uh, explained, you know, he, he was as frightened as anybody would be the first time he saw, well, not just the first time, but see these people levitating and floating over the sagebrush. But he got to know them, and uh, he got to be able to work with them. He got to admire them and, uh, and felt very comfortable with them. But he certainly made it clear that they had been exchanging technology with the United States Air Force uh, for some period of time before he got there and when he was there, which was in the 1960s. And it is his belief, although he hasn't been back there for a while, that they're still around. And, uh, you know, they're just a, a fantastic story that he had to, uh, to tell about them, especially one of the things that impressed me was that they lived between 600 and 800 years uh, Victor and I, mm -hmm. I thought to myself, reading about Methuselah, we'd always been kind of skeptical about that, but maybe there was something in it, I don't know. But an interesting point. Yeah, I, I just, uh, I'm always fascinated about Charles's uh, conversations and his ideas about what he went through. Um, and his conversation is yet to be, um, to be told and unfolded. It will be one of the more fascinating parts of this whole 
and which leads me to the point of, of once again getting back to uh, the public acceptance about all of this, and which also leads me to um, want to ask you, Paul, when you first came forward in 205 and you had the, the, the inklings and the, the information that you had and the contacts that you had and the discussions you had and the whole ambiance and the presence of this issue back then in 205, and now we're, you know, we're five years later. What is your assessment of how things have moved along in terms of the breadth and depth of the way this information is being sort of put on the public stage? How do you see it uh, different than it was then as it is now? Well, I, th I think, first of all, I've uh, learned an awful lot because uh, after I went public, I started getting uh, mail from all over the world, documents of all kinds. Some, most of them made sense. The odd one didn't. I, just, I soon learned to tell the difference between the mm -hmm. ones that were wheat and those that were chaff. And the books, all kinds of books, and I've read a lot of them. And I have learned a great deal. And I have sort of monitored the press reaction, the press uh, response generally to the subject since then. And I would say that we're making progress, but we started so low down. Mm -hmm. It's gone through cycles, though. I went back in my, my files when I was Minister of Defense, or maybe it was when I was moved to transport, Somebody had put together a book for me and, and sent me pictures that had been taken from the press all over the world about extraterrestrial sightings and landings and beautiful pictures of the machines, very real. But this was back, these pictures were taken back in the, in the 50s and 60s. Well, then you go through the Blue Book stage, the Blue Book being the alleged record of sightings in the United States, and uh, so there was quite a bit of, of publicity in those days. Well, then they hold this, uh, this so-called uh, review or whatever it was. The, con the Condon Report. The Conning Report, mm -hmm. yes. And, and the whitewash. <laughs> well, that's exactly, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're getting ahead. Mm -hmm. you're, you're saying exactly what happened. He writes an executive summary which says, in effect, this is all a lot of baloney. And, but without explaining the hundreds of unexplained sightings. The effect, however, with the press was they picked it up and went with the executive summation, and the subject just dropped out of sight. Now, I don't think this was accidental. And, of course, the United States Air Force said they were ending the, the program of being interested in sightings after that, and that, of course, in my opinion, is not the truth that they just ended that particular project, which was a public one, and went underground, just as the people in Canada went underground uh, 50 years ago after the press uh, were harassing them a little bit. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the five years since I first went public, we have made some progress, but we were starting at a very low level. What about your, your colleagues, former cabinet ministers, uh, politicians from other countries where you met them across the table. What what do they make of, first of all, your coming forward and also this this whole issue? Do they talk in private differently about this than they do publicly? I seldom see them. I, I only have, uh, I guess, one former minister that I talk to regularly. And he, of course, is uh, fully convinced and... Uh, and a supporter, uh, but um, I just don't see very many from time to time, and uh, certainly I know that if I only had five minutes with them, they wouldn't want to spend it on this subject. 
Victor has spent countless hours trying to capture the attention of of people like Peter McKay. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've sent copies of uh, uh, the DVD. Not I know what you. I know we know what we saw. But what was the one that you sent to the various uh, MPPs and MPs? Fast walkers. Fast walkers. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing that maybe a handful have actually watched it. Uh, I don't mean to be harsh, Victor, but that's probably the reality, right? Absolutely. It's, There's no doubt I mean, about it. Mm-hmm. You're, you're almost, it's like you're shoveling sand against the tide trying to capture these people's attention. Do you have any, I mean, could you pick up the phone and talk to Peter McKay? I mean, what kind of pull do you have at this point? Um, about zero, I would say. And certainly he would be too busy. He's got uh, too much on his mind trying to cope with his boss. Um, Victor reminded me of one errand he asked me to do, and that was to see Colin Kenney, who was the head of the uh, Senate Security Committee. And Colin used to work for me, so I've had a bit of an in there. And we talked uh, at at considerable length about a number of things, and uh, I got onto this issue, because that's the reason I was there, really, to see him about this issue and try and get him to hold a hearing, a public hearing. And press release, actually, that Victor put out saying that we're going to make this effort got a lot of publicity in the United States, far more than anything else that's happened in the last five years. And um, Colin's reaction was, it's too big. He said, we've got a problem here with uh, icebreakers that we can't patrol our own shores and we can't patrol the North and so on, and we haven't got the money and we haven't got the time. And I, and my committee have to work on these, I'll say realistic, but these things that are bread and butter issues and get on with those. And we just haven't got the, the time and the capacity and the, the vision. Of, he didn't use that word, but the, the need to uh, take on a, a bite of this size at this time. To address perhaps the most important issue ever to confront mankind. Now, does, does, that, does that mean... And I don't mean to be disparaging of, of someone of, of Colin Kenny's uh, stature, but if I make a generalization, it, does this point to the lack of intellectual acuity and curiosity of men of this ilk, or is it just fear? Just fear of jumping off the platform of sorry, a platform of standard, um, as you say, you know, dealings in, in committee work, uh, and moving off that platform and moving on to one that's very, very dangerous and has some very significant implications, which would be if Colin Kenny had come forward at that time. In office, it would have been similar to Paul coming forward back in, in whenever you were in, in, your, in your chair. And I think um, politicians of that ilk are just fearful of dealing with it because they just don't have the intellectual capacity or possibly strong words, but the integrity to look at this thing from the point of view of a species-saving effort. And that's what it would be. If, if, if the Canadian government were to come forward on this tomorrow and, and say something about it, it would be a species-changing event. And if Canada did come forward, which it could very easily do, because I know people do have the information, if it did, it would be an event of unparalleled significance in the, in the history of the world. But there's just not the integrity there to look at it from that point of view. That's well, my take. 
Well, I'm not sure about the integrity issue, uh, Victor. I don't know of any Canadian politician that's in the know. There could conceivably be one, but I wouldn't know who it was. This whole thing has gone private, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. When? At what point? Do we know? Well, as I said, I think way back with the Blue Book, and maybe before in this country. But I I think it's, first of all, the people who have knowledge in this area are the ones that Lewis Lappin, the uh, editor of... um, of Harper's Magazine called the permanent government. They're the top industrialists, the top lawyers, and the people who are there with whom politicians come and go, but they're the ones that are in control that we, we were talking about. And I don't, I think it's a, it's a question of, of vision and perspective <clears throat> because you meet very few people who spend much time thinking about what's going to happen 10 years from now or 20 years from now or 50 years from now or 100 years from now, although there's the odd article about it. Very, very few. Most people are interested in bread and butter issues. There are very high proportion of people in this country who live one paycheck to the next and have spent one before they get the next one. And it's all gone, a lot of it for interest on debts. Which is largely by design, too, I suspect, that, right. that it keeps us from being able to focus on these on the big picture. We're so, we're, we're, we have these well-appointed caves, but we have to, we know we're so busy running around trying to pay for our, uh, you know, piano lessons for our kids and, and, uh, and, and so forth. We, we just, it's God and carpeting. I mean, we, <laughs> we go home, yeah. <laughs> we have no time for anything well, well, else. Well, exactly, exactly so, and some people are so busy that they don't even think of retirement benefits. You know, because if, if we were totally rational and if we were really good planners, you'd say at age 25, what do I have to do to have a proper standard of life at age 65? But there isn't one person in, what, 50 who does that. And they're only the ones that happen to read a bank advertisement or something by, mm-hmm. by accident because we're, we're, so, we're so limited and so constrained with the, with the piano lessons and getting the kids to hockey practice and uh, and getting winter clothes on time and getting them people to school and all of these things that are so much a part of our busy lives and especially for those that spend an hour or two each day commuting back and forth that we don't have time to think you know what's our country going to be like and how are we going to look after all these old people and if we've got $37,000 debt per person now what are we going to have in five years mm-hmm. and how much interest is it going to cost us each year uh, at the federal provincial and municipal levels the, these, these are issues that are so big in a sense that their, their importance is so great that it's, it's sort of like Colin Kenny's reaction, it's too big so put it off well, I, I guess I guess my reaction. Uh, I use the word integrity, and I, I do admit that might have been too strong a word. I guess it's a matter of personal courage, I suppose. I, I'm just waiting. Same for, thing. Well, yeah. I, I guess what I'm saying, Richard, is that uh, who, who, as a sitting politician, receiving the information, if Paul were to sit down uh, with Colin again or with another politician, a sitting politician, which I have, a, an Ontario member of Parliament, I've sat down with. And, bro- and briefed him on this issue. I'm waiting for a sitting, politi- sitting politician to, to be briefed on this and sit back and say, oh my God, you are telling me, tell me you're kidding. 
tell me this is not true. I cannot believe what you're saying. We have to find out what's really going on. Not in a naive way to say, oh my goodness, I didn't know anything about this. I'm ignorant about it. But this has immense political implications, policy implications for every single person in this country. We need to find out more about what's going on because we're being lied to. Ipso facto, job done. I'm a politician. I'm going to try to find out about this. I dare to say there's probably not one of those sitting in Ottawa right now that's willing to do that. All right, let's let's take a time out. Vidya Bajiani, Exopolitics Canada, the Honorable Paul Hellier. The book is Light at the End of the Tunnel, a survival plan for the human species. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Paul, Richard Dolan uh, has posited that there may be, and this cabal may have at their disposal, we, we know they have untold trillions, but they may also have this alien technology so that they almost constitute a separate civilization. They may already be living off-planet, which might explain why they really don't give uh, a darn what happens here in terms of, uh, you know, the environmental degradation. What do you think about that? Just one more thing I would like the answer to. I prefer not to speculate. And I, I listen carefully when I hear all of the various possibilities and put them in the back of my mind. I very seldom repeat them unless I hear them from several fairly reputable people, and even then I put them in the realm of speculation, which I do with some things in my book. And I only try to, I only say that things are are certain, or I give a, a, an indication of how certain I am of all the things that I say, because I'm very cautious, I, I hate to use that word conservative, but very cautious in going out on a limb, just as I was when I went public five years ago. Because I don't say that kind of thing unless I'm absolutely sure that it uh, it isn't going to let me down and when hi- history is written. So there, there are just so many reasons why the people of the United States who have paid the bill or most of it for what's gone on and the people of the world who are being directly affected and who can be very directly affected if the United States with the military technology it's you it's developed with the uh, help of the well with based on the alien technology is such now that they can pulverize the, these craft and uh, and disintegrate them and so on uh, what this might lead to and I heaven only knows and but I would like to know I think part of the problem uh, Richard uh, is that uh, what Paul is alluding to in terms of speculation there is just so much about it that is total speculation and the way the lie is playing itself out is forcing people like myself and, and you and Paul and other you know, researchers and people that are involved in this, activists, they're forcing us to speculate and as a result of that wild stories are being developed by those who choose to speculate for uh, less than honorable reasons. So really the, the, the field is just so muddied with all kinds of you know, weird information. And that's one of the reasons why this is not coming forward in a nice, clean way. Because, in fact, we are being forced to speculate. And the, whoever the cabal is, they've done such an excellent job of framing this in a way that anything that comes out is so fantastic and unbelievable that people have to take sides on a yes or a no. So the average person, as we talked about earlier, is trying to put bread on the table. 
they're completely confused. So they just they just look away. They just can't deal with this. It's just too much. Uh, too big an issue for them to deal with. So uh, I, I can't blame people for taking a step back and saying it's all bunk. I don't have time for it. Uh, I understand that point of view. But as soon as you see the reality in the people's faces who speak to you, who have had direct contact with extraterrestrials, who are who have seen a UFO, um, you can then begin to see that you become touched by this issue. And once you're touched by the issue personally, there is no doubt about it. There is no going back. So, which ends the speculation, and I think most of us that are beyond speculation uh, know that the lie has to be solved, has to be dealt with in some way. And I think what I have, what I haven't said um, publicly yet, um, and that is, I saw my first one on Thanksgiving weekend. My goodness, Muskoka, from the dock, where the picture is taken. That's in the book, uh, a picture taken by. Uh, by, uh, the same doc? Jeff, Jeff, Jeff uh, Cherry. Right. was uh, Don Cherry's uh, brother. And that's uh, the last picture in, in the book. And we went out, uh, my wife went out to uh, look at the stars when we were up there and went out the patio and it wasn't, she couldn't see through the trees, so she went out the, the other way. And I, for some reason, which I seldom would be inclined to do, put on my hat and followed her out. And she said, oh, look, there's a star pointing in the eastern sky. And I said, I looked at it and saw it. Then I turned around and I said, uh, hey, there's a brighter one. Over in the, in the in, I don't know if I said west, but in the eastern sky. And so we started watching it, and all of a sudden started moving. And we sat, stood, with our necks half broken, and watched it for 20 minutes as it would change course and move and did the strangest and most interesting things. And uh, so then you start going through, well, could it be a satellite? No. Uh, could it be a star? Well, stars don't move like that. <laughs> and I checked with Victor about where the uh, space, sta space station had been, and it apparently moves a lot faster than this. Uh, so that's why you asked me that question. That's why I asked you the question. <laughs> And because I was verifying in my own mind okay. to be absolutely sure, and I saw it three, I, I went out three nights, two nights in a row, skipped one and went out the fourth night, and it was in the same vicinity each time. And, uh, and I think the, the, the final night probably would change <clears throat> attitude by maybe two or three degrees in as many seconds. I thought, wow! You, you know, saw it consecutive nights? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. As if you needed further confirmation, but you have it now. I have it. And that, so now when people <clears throat> ask me if I've ever seen one, the answer is yes, which is the first time in uh, five years that I've been able to say that. Well, uh, Paul Hellyer, uh, a great honor and a privilege. Uh, and thank you. This is, um, you're, you're a very courageous man. Uh, when you could be, you know, sitting back and uh, looking back on your, your legacy, which is impressive, to, some might suggest, perhaps even jeopardize that. You know, uh, the skeptics might, uh, might look at it that way. I, I, don't, I don't look at it that way, certainly. But um, nonetheless, this is a, a very courageous uh, thing that you're doing. And I thank you uh, not only for being with us tonight, but uh, um, for speaking out the way that you have. Well, thank you very much. I really feel that I have no alternative. I have to say what I believe uh, because I think it's important to future generations, and I care what happens to them.
So if I can do anything that will help them in any possible way, why I'm going to do it as long as I've got strength. Well, let's uh, let's have you back on the program real soon and uh, discuss the money myth, shall we? That would be great. All right. And Victor Vigiani, hats off to you. You're an integral part of uh, making history happen as well. Obviously, um, you know, a, a, a nudge and a cajole back in 2005. Otherwise, this might not have uh, come to light. Yeah. With, yeah. So without Victor, kudos. Without Victor, I wouldn't have been here. There you go. Kudos <laughs> to you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And I think it's really a testament to what, what Paul is, is working towards. Because one day, uh, I guarantee the, the, the three of us sitting here, um, this recording that we're making, and uh, in terms of it being a radio program, uh, will be listened to by people four, five, six, eight, ten years from now. And uh, I'm just hoping that uh, history will show that, ah, uh, now I know what they were talking about. Thank you, gentlemen. And thank you, of course, for listening. Special thanks to Dan Ellison for technical production. And next week, John Rappaport of No More Fake News, legendary investigator journalist, will be with us to discuss homeschooling. And we'll talk about the lost technologies of the Great Pyramid with Stephen Myers. Until then, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.